1: Oh, I am am writing an article about Chinese barbecue (laughs) at the same time that I am researching the difference between Atlantic and Mediterranean tuna, at the same time that I'm trying to figure out when I can go to Atlanta to take a cooking class at a Publix. Um,
2: (laughs) You're listening to The Taste Podcast. I'm senior editor Anna Huesel, and I'm here with editor-in-chief Matt Rodbard.
0: On today's show, we have Julia Moskin, New York Times reporter working on the Food Desk and winner of the Pulitzer Prize. We also have Jen De La Vega, one of Taste's cooks in residence. Anna, how was your conversation with Julia?
2: Julia is such a powerhouse. I spoke to her a week after she had won a Pulitzer, and we talked at the Bell House in Brooklyn at a live podcast event that we hosted with Bon Appetit, and she had so much to say about reporting. About the weird snack she eats at the end of a long day when she gets home. She was so funny and interesting.
0: I love the way that she can kind of split the difference between covering like all that nastiness in, in the backs of kitchens, all the, the politics around food, and also like she's a great home cook and has amazing recipes. She's an amazing journalist, really.
2: Yeah, she gave us a little preview about what she's working on now and. It's so many different parts of her brain. It's like reporting on barbecue and cookies and crime, and she gets a lot done at once.
0: And we have Jen De La Vega.
2: Yeah, Jen is our current taste cook-in residence, and she has written all about wedding catering for us and Filipino cooking, and I'm excited to sit down and talk to her.
0: Here's Anna with Julia Moskin at the Bell House in Brooklyn.
2: Sorry to put you on the spot right off the bat, but what is the
1: best commercial brand of hot dogs? Well, the Hebrew National Hot Dog won our blind tasting. It was blind, which does make a difference. Um, But I have to admit, and we discussed this extensively in advance of our blind tasting, the fact that all of the tasters were native New Yorkers may have been a bit of a problem. (laughs) Because, as you may or not know, New York hot dogs are all beef hot dogs. And they don't really believe in that in a lot of other parts of the country. There are pork-beef combos that you can't even imagine. There are toppings that we have never thought of, like cucumbers in Chicago. <laughs> Whatever, okay. <laughs> we didn't have any of that. But um, I did vow, after, I think I got more reader mail after the hot dog tasting than any other, including many people from Buffalo. Sorry. Sorry about it. I'm from Buffalo. Sorry, everyone. Saying just people filled with rage, saying, I cannot believe you did not include fill-in German hot dog manufacturer's name here Mm -hmm. in your tasting. They are the best and only hot dogs that anyone should ever eat. So, Is that the most controversial thing you've ever written? No. (laughs) I wish that that were true. Um, The most controversial thing that I have ever written, I was not expecting um, to be threatened on national television about, but was um, a story that I wrote about ghostwriting uh, and ghostwriters of cookbooks, which I did for a long time. Something that I wrote about, and I called up some people who had been in involved with Rachel Ray's books and Gwyneth Paltrow's book. Um, Julia Tertian then was Gwyneth Paltrow's writer, I guess would have been the title that they would have used. Um, And they spoke with me very freely and said, yes, you know, I've worked on their books and I've written the recipes and, you know, I just love it so much. And then the story came out and as you can imagine, Gwyneth Paltrow has some very scary people who oh, work for her. Boy. Oh, boy. <laughs> um, and Rachel Ray is a, she's not a quiet person. And so uh, I was driving on that day, as I recall, from Las Vegas to Los Angeles, because I was doing a path of the hard taco sort of odyssey. <laughs> and I was going to meet someone in San Bernardino who was going to tell me everything that I needed to know. And my phone just started blowing up like crazy. I just... And so I, kept, I had to keep pulling over. And um, that night, ultimately, uh, after threatening to have me fired and all of that, and many frantic phone calls, and Rachel Ray's, uh, one of her recipe developers, disappearing. I think he was exterminated. He has never been heard from again. Um, came on Rachel Ray's show and they had a whole conversation about how wrong I was because, of course, they wrote their own books and they would never just have someone else write their books. Um, And then they had a conversation saying things like, I mean, I didn't write every word. I didn't write the glossary. And I was like, well, there you go. You know, I'm the writer. Someone has to write the glossary. That's what happens. And... I, having written all so many recipes and so many head notes, it's just endless. Um, I did feel like I scored a point that day for the ghost writers, and I actually heard from a lot of ghost writers in many fields thanking me for that. And I did not get fired, and we did not publish a correction. But Rachel Ray still hates me.
2: <laughs> I think a lot of people think of food writing as a really lighthearted, fun job where you get to taste foods, eat out at fancy restaurants, and it's like all fun and games. But you have enemies, it sounds like. You have people you have people coming after you. I don't
1: mostly I don't have enemies. Mostly I just have a lot of deadlines. Um And a lot of things that I have to eat, which, you know, does seem like it would be a great thing. And, I mean, you're also a food writer, and and people think, like, we spend all of our time eating at restaurants, and it's so great. But there are a lot of circumstances under which it's not that much fun to eat at a restaurant.
2: Yeah, what are the biggest misconceptions about that? Because people always think, when they hear you're a food writer, they think that you're a restaurant critic. They think that you get to just, like, (laughs) eat wonderful, fancy meals all the time and, like, what could be wrong with that? But what are the biggest misconceptions about that?
1: Well, there are many, you might not know this, but there are many restaurants that are not very good. (laughs) What? (laughs) (laughs) And As um, when you're covering the restaurant industry, even if you're not a critic, you really have to go to new restaurants all the time. You know, you have to know what's going on. It's very important and it's very entertaining and fascinating to follow. But um, you end up going to a lot of restaurants that have only just opened. They're very nervous. They don't necessarily know what they're doing. Um, They just haven't hit their stride yet. And so another thing is that you never get to go back to a restaurant that you like. Like, you might eat a great meal and be like, that was fantastic. And I will never get to eat there again for at least 22 years until I retire from my job, which is sad.
2: Do you ever get sick of restaurant food? Like, at the end of a long day of work, when you get home,
1: what do you eat? Like, what do you (laughs) crave as just, like, an end-of-the-night meal? Well... We don't have a test kitchen at the New York Times. We do often have tastings, and they're always like very strange things that people are sending us that I don't have to taste, but Florence Fabric can't. The poor thing. And I mean, <laughs> maybe this is why she is still so energized, but like every mustard that comes through that's her job. She has to eat it. All the soybean products. Like, she won't eat cricket. Like, we have decided that, you know, that is for the next generation, and we're just not going to do the bug thing. Somebody else can do that. Laurence needs to
2: branch out. She needs to (laughs) chow down on some crickets. No,
1: she's allowed to say no crickets at her her stage of her career. Um, So sometimes there are um, parties and events that you go to, and it's sort of like this, and there is a lot of great food and amazing chefs who are there, but... You know, eating, like, standing up, it's just not the best situation. And especially, you know, you don't really get to sit down and appreciate it. Um, Another thing that often happens is tasting menus.
2: That's exhausting. Yeah.
1: There is no food writer who likes tasting menus, unfortunately. It's It's hours long. It's so long. You don't get to choose what you eat, right? Right. And so many different things. That you have to eat. And Most food writers I know are like, "I wish I could just eat a steak au poivre and go to bed." So when I get home, there is no steak au poivre at my house, and I <laughs> am addicted. I just eat cereal so often <laughs> for dinner, which is what I did when I was unemployed. So this it's is a all very glamorous job,
2: <laughs> as you can see. <laughs> what cereal do you eat? <laughs> Tell us. <laughs> Hello. There's no backing out now, you have to tell us. <laughs>
1: <laughs> okay, I don't eat sugar cereal, because I was raised by hippies, and my mother always said, when you have your own house, you can eat Fruit Loops, and I was like, yeah, I fucking will. <laughs> <laughs> and of course, do I eat, no. That's I, what I, adulthood I is all about. That's what I thought, that's what I thought I had to look forward to, but I like Cheerios because they're salty. And um, like a lot of food professionals, I don't have much of a sweet tooth. I don't know why that is. Um, And I have sort of a house cocktail of Cheerios. I like cornflakes.
2: That's not what I think of when I think of house cocktail. (laughs) But I love it, I love that style. It's great. (laughs) Thank you. So literally one week ago, you were at a big party with Kendrick Lamar, receiving <laughs> a Pulitzer
1: Prize. Is
2: that, that right? I was.
1: was? Thank you. I mean,
2: personally, I've never heard of this prize. I don't know. What it, is it a smaller thing? <laughs> well, you it's know? not like getting a James Beard Award. Right. For sure. Yeah. Didn't, Which, I didn't win that can one. Can you just no. be honest with us? Which was a better party? That <laughs> one or this one? <laughs> Just
1: different, really. <laughs> Just different.
2: Was there, like, a red carpet well, that and you Well, that gown? was at
1: lunchtime,
2: okay. which was
1: weird. But it was open bar, which was awesome.
2: <laughs> <laughs> which party had more drunk people, that one or this one?
1: <laughs> it was lunchtime. Like, people had to go back to work. Um, yeah, you didn't... Don't you think you became a food writer because you thought you would win major journalism prizes? Isn't that one Definitely of the reasons? not.
2: Has a food writer <laughs> ever won a Pulitzer Prize before, or a food, or someone from the
1: New York Times food section has that happened? Nope, that's never happened. There, ha- um, it was very exciting, I think, for everybody when Jonathan Gold um, won a Pulitzer Prize in criticism for his work at the LA Weekly as their restaurant critic, which was well deserved and amazing. Um, that was the first time a restaurant critic had ever won because there is still very much a stigma in newspaper journalism about what is real news, what is hard news, and what are still sometimes called... No one would say the ladies' pages, but um, food, furnishings, fashion. So that's food, home, style. And those of us who work in those areas... Worked just as hard as anyone in the D.C. Bureau, except maybe Maggie Haberman, because she is clearly, like, four people. Um, and, you know, we really try. We try. You know, we have very high standards for what we write about and the work that we do. And we're certainly held to the same, you know, exacting standards of fact-checking and all of that kind of stuff. So it was pretty amazing. No one has ever won before, um, for for reporting. So for me and Kim Severson, we both felt like we were winning it for all the people who work in the New York Times style section because they try very hard and people make fun of them constantly. <laughs> <laughs> and the home section and other kinds of journalism whose work tends to be considered kind of outside, um, you know, the hard news circle.
2: So the Pulitzer that you won was about... It was for reporting on sexual harassment in the restaurant industry. And how do you kind of decide to write about that? Like, how do you, as a writer at the New York Times, pick
1: that topic? How did it come to you? Well, it was not, that was not the hard part. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Because I think every journalist in America, after the Harvey Weinstein revelations came to light, looked around and thought, well, who's the Harvey Weinstein on my beat? Mm -hmm. Um, and there are a lot of Harvey Weinsteins in the restaurant industry Um, but the victims of our Harvey Weinsteins unfortunately are not famous they're not rich, they're not powerful they're mostly women who were waitresses and still are or they're sous chefs Um, and there's still a ton of fear and silence because There is still such a lot of word of mouth um, that gets people jobs in the restaurant industry, in the New York food scene. So even though we have gotten tips about many people who are not Mario Batali um, and are not Ken Friedman, it's been really difficult to report. And our standards of proof or our standards of, you know, we're not going to write anything based on what one person says and I mean I interviewed 27 people who had worked at the Spotted Pig so we felt very confident making generalizations like people seem to be getting kissed a lot that didn't want to be kissed but you know those things we take it very seriously. Um, That's one of the things about working at the Times I know that's one of the things that you know keeps Pete Wells up at night is the responsibility of keeping restaurants in business killing people's dreams, it's, you know. (laughs) For
2: sure, yeah. And do you think that this will kind of change the way restaurant reviewers like Pete Wells kind of cover restaurants? I mean, there's so many female chefs out there who haven't been covered as much as male chefs. There's always been that discrepancy. And do you think that this moment is kind of going to change that a little bit? Or do you think that restaurant reviewers will approach male chefs with a
1: little more of a discerning eye? Well, they've, I mean, I'm actually thinking that at the moment, most of the major newspapers have restaurant critics who are men, which is interesting. Um, Yeah, I do. I mean, some, you know, Michael Bauer at the Chronicle has specifically said that he's not going to take that into account, um, which is a decision that, most of the rest of the staff disagreed with publicly. Mm-hmm. So, and meaning
2: he will not take it into account if he's heard allegations or he just won't take, like, a gender into account?
1: Well, gender is very complicated. For sure, yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, you know, I, when you say that, you know, categorically women chefs have not received as much coverage as male chefs, I think you could equally say that small restaurants don't receive as much coverage as big restaurants. Like, there are different ways to slice that um, that are unfortunate and very gendered and very sexist, absolutely. But I don't actually think that, for the most part, at least at the Times, I don't think we write more about men than women because of gender. I might be living in a fantasy world. But it's also because we have the luxury of having budgets and we do not have to take free meals from publicists. I mean, it's a, that's a huge part of it is, like, who can afford a publicist and which publicist? And, you know, those kinds of events, those kinds of things are definitely something that if you already have... The contacts and the prestige, which of course partly come from your gender, you can take advantage of. We're a little bit outside that, I like to think, but it is a big problem. For sure. Who do you think has a harder job, you or Pete Wells? (laughs) Well, um, I have eaten with Pete Wells. It is an exhausting process. Um, Well,
2: Angie and Matt earlier tonight were talking about a night that he spent at the Beatrice Inn where he stayed there until I think Andrew said like four in the morning.
1: Really? (laughs) Yeah, he was really doing his job. (laughs) He was eating for hours, apparently. Well, you do have to, not in one meal, thank God, but you do have to eat everything on the menu, pretty much. Mm -hmm. Um, You have to somehow, even though you eat out, something like six nights a week and usually three or four days, you have to maintain a stance of enthusiasm and of wanting the restaurant to succeed because if you just become a curmudgeon and a grouch, you'll be a terrible restaurant critic. And that's not how most people go to restaurants. Most people go to restaurants in a spirit of discovery and excitement and hope because it's really fucking expensive and you're going to spend a lot of money there and you Mm -hmm. really hope that you're going to have a good time And that infuses your experience enormously. Um, I mean, there are different concepts of what restaurant criticism is, right? Either, you know, it's a service to people who are spending their hard-earned money and you should approach it as, you know, anybody who is coming in for their birthday dinner. Or you have the approach where you are the... where the critic is an expert and who is going to come, you know, down from in the heavens and tell you whether you should like something and whether it's authentic or not and whether it's good. So you have to balance both of those things. Um, I think he does a very good job of that, but I've done it's it's just it's a very physically grueling job. Yeah, and a
2: harder job than people think. I think people think of it as just like a really fun oh, job.
1: No, it's it's like torture. It's really <laughs> Physically it is torture. Um, and also what often happens is that restaurants actually get very nervous that he's there. And so dinner takes forever because the chef is waiting for like the best quail mm-hmm. to come out and he's like no not that one, no not that one and then like, they have to constantly be cooking the servers are nervous, they pour wine in his, like on the table everyone's very agitated and it's yeah. very stressful because everyone is pretending it's like a little play because they have to pretend that they don't know that he's there, he has to pretend that he doesn't know that they know <laughs> and it's just really, it's just, it's really not, it's a lot, it's hard it's yeah, really, it is a really hard job. And by the way, Guy Fieri's restaurant was that bad. I ate there. It really was. Oh
2: yeah, right.
1: <laughs> And I like Guy Fieri. I wrote. Actually, Pete Wells assigned me a profile of Guy Fieri when he was the editor. But that restaurant was disgusting. Wait,
2: so so you hung out with Guy Fieri for this profile?
1: I did.
2: What did you guys do together?
1: I have to ask. <laughs> I think I think we. I think he managed. To squeeze me in between, like, a diner and a dive. Oh, okay. Oh, surprising that it's one of those two. (laughs) In a limo, like, from one to the other. That was what he had. But I have to say the fact that he grew up (laughs) riding a horse to school... Is really I one of my favorite this. sentences that I've ever written. Yeah.
2: That is huge news to me personally.
1: He was also raised by hippies, uh, in his case, in Northern California. Um, I think his father was a leather worker and his mother cool. was like a Montessori teacher and he rode a horse to school.
2: Wow. That's fascinating. I, I had no idea.
1: Yeah.
2: Um, also, the other thing about restaurant critics is that you kind of have to conceal your identity. I mean, there's kind of a long tradition in restaurant criticism of dining anonymously so you're not treated with bias. And that also sounds a little bit exhausting, kind of like disguising yourself. People wear costumes, right?
3: Well...
1: <laughs> um, certainly, that used to be a huge feature of of restaurant criticism, um, and it was like this. Yeah, and people love that idea of like you know, like the spy game. And yeah, it's like a spy, were, spy. Yeah, like yeah. you would be like whispering into your watch. Um, you know, like many things. The internet did kind of change all that, yeah. um, and the fact is that it's not there are There are certain ways that a restaurant can change for a critic, but not at the last minute you know it's really hard for them unless they know that you're coming in in advance and that's why I and Pete and everyone who works for the Times has multiple aliases and but you know it's not they're kind of hard to keep track of um so you, we do have different names What's we your have alter to have eco? <laughs> <laughs> it's very boring um, uh It's just, yeah, and so um, we just maintain constantly having to change phone numbers and names is really what we do now because, of course, you know, as in so many things, your humanity and your identity is identified by your cell phone number. And that's once restaurants have that, they know so much about you. Um, and especially if you're using Resy or Open Table or something like that, you know they can yeah. just find you. So um, Cause it's that's, connected to your name. That's really what we what we conceal now. Not so much like our faces or our hair and. And, I mean, nobody's looking for me, and I look like about 100,000 other women in New York City, so (laughs) it's very helpful.
2: (laughs) So you recently wrote about the idea of procrastinating.
1: Mm -hmm. Has anyone
2: done that before? Is that familiar?
1: (laughs) (laughs) Did you come up with that term? No, I did not. I mean, this is part of, like, the new uh, frontiers of journalism where you're like what is a popular hashtag on Instagram? <laughs> Let me see. Um, actually, I think it's, it's you know, probably uh, that people that I follow were using that tag. And I was like, what is that? And, you know, I've written several stories like that, um, based, like about, like, Asian frozen desserts, um, you know, all the mermaid stuff and the galaxy stuff. And there's so much about food now that is really just, visual It's just really decorating um, and really isn't about eating. Mm-hmm. So um, it was really fun to find procrastinating Baking as this thing that people actually do. They're actually baking. They're actually cooking. Because a lot of what I end up writing about is, is just kind of the fantasy or like the crazy milkshakes or whatever. But it's a strange mix where the, the, at the same time I was writing about procrastinating, excuse me <laughs> I, I actually have never done that before um, <laughs> um, was the week I believe of the, of the uh, Pulitzer ceremony and you know, people ask you questions like what do you usually write about and I was like well <laughs> pancakes? I don't know
2: but do you find yourself procrastinating ever? Uh <laughs>
1: So, um, I you know, I have often testing recipes, so I don't have a lot of choice about what I cook. Um, so you have a family, you have two children.
2: Do they love that? Do they love the fact that you're no. always cooking chocolate chip cookies? Mm,
1: they <laughs> like the chocolate chip cookies. They don't like the other stuff. Like, some chef is like, I really, this cold soup with candied violets and seaweed is... The best. I mean, it's my it's my signature recipe, and that's the only one that I'm going to give you. And it's going to say like, combine seaweed broth as usual with candied violets, serve cold, and like that's it. Um, because chefs cannot write recipes. That's one of the reasons that there are ghostwriters for chefs because they have no sense. I mean, it's nothing personal. It's not a criticism, but like they have no sense about how real people actually cook. Um, and so writing about what chefs do and writing about what home cooks do is, they're just very different things
2: has any of your job rubbed off on your kids like do they like to cook, are they into food at all or have you noticed kind of subtle...
1: they like cereal a lot <laughs> <laughs> no they do um, the one many. thing you know, they're, they, I mean, the, the rule that I had, have always had for them is that they didn't have to eat everything but they had to try everything just one bite and so they accept that they've been to a lot of restaurants Um, children really don't like restaurants in case you did not know this they don't understand why you would ever wait for food because they're used to like you sit down and your mother gives you your food and then you leave and so those stints when my kids were little were just agonizing Um, I think taking little kids to restaurants is just like self-inflicted torture. I had to do it quite a bit for work. Um, I would pray when I took my son to a restaurant that there was a laundromat on the block because while we were waiting between courses, I could take him to the laundromat and he could watch the laundry go around and around and around. (laughs) And he liked that. Other than that, he was like, why are we still here? This Four makes no sense. Or
2: restaurants in New York should just have <laughs> laundromats inside in them. them. It's
1: true. It's like a captive audience. It's perfect.
2: For sure, yeah.
1: But what they do have is this... Um, I mean, partly they're growing up in New York. Partly they're my kids. And so what they do have is this sense that, like, you basically never eat the same thing more than once for dinner. Right. right? It's just always different. So there's no such thing as, like, Taco Tuesday or... Friday night pizza, it's just like, but we had orecchiette <laughs> with broccoli, rob and sausage two weeks ago, and it's, you know, it's they a... They need
2: to be amused they, by the food. They're
1: curious, um, which I'm grateful for. They don't like everything, but they are, they're interested in food, and that's really how I was raised, which, you know, I mean, I grew up... In, um, four blocks away from where I live now on the Upper West Side and my parents named me after Julia Child and we went wow. to restaurants a lot <laughs> um, and they were just home cooks they weren't professionals at all but um, just that curiosity and the ability to like when you're it's at breakfast and you're talking about what you might have for lunch and at lunch you talk about what you're going to have for dinner and it's you know it's a good it's, it's a topic of perennial discussion <laughs>
2: That's awesome. Do, have, have your kids ever introduced you to a food that you haven't tried
1: or introduced you to, like, an idea about food? Um, my Well, my son decided that he wanted to learn to make pasta, which is something that I have always been really intimidated by. Like, pasta, bread, all of those mysterious flour things. Um <laughs> So he took a class and we bought an expensive pasta machine that we charged to the New York Times, so it was fine. <laughs> thank you, New York Times. And thank you, New York Times. And there were two occasions where he tried to make ravioli and it was like there was weeping, it was midnight. <laughs> like, they it's si-
2: not ravioli if there's no weeping.
1: <laughs> <laughs> I like that. I'm going to use that. <laughs> um... Yeah. So, you know, there are certain things that I do believe that you do not have to know how to make at home. And it turns out, I think that ravioli is one of them. Yeah. Go to a restaurant. Yeah. That's what restaurants are for.
2: Yeah. Yeah. So what is next... For a food writer who has won Pulitzer, like what, like where do you go from there? What is your job now? Like,
1: do you are you? I know a lot of people set? seem to think get, that yes, you, once you, you get to win be done a Pulitzer now? Prize, yeah, you just like lie down and people bring you cocktails <laughs> and like and stories and like none of that is true. Uh, I mean, I imagine this is also true of Oscar winners and so on. Is like you just have to get back to work and. You know, you worry about where your next story is coming from. It's really, really hard to get people... Um, you know, there are many offenders in the restaurant industry. Um, you know, people we would really like to talk about. And it's very, very difficult um, to get people to talk on the record. Um, but a lot like what... Uh, in terms of the, the Spotted Pig... Uh, for example, which is what we wrote about. One of the reasons we were able to do that is not because the person that we were writing about was such a a terrible offender, because in many ways he was not, he hasn't been accused of rape or sexual assault, but because it was a workplace situation. So it was very clear that when he was kissing his waitresses and putting his hands down their pants that it was not okay, illegal. And... uh, But in many situations, we have just like, you know, one woman who, you know, was drunk or thinks maybe something was put in her drink or maybe wasn't. Um, And so, you know, we really, really, we need people to talk. Um, And I think a lot of people think that it's, you can't just call up the New York Times and ask to talk to me, but you can. Um, And that is kind of the kind of, of stuff that we hope for. And then in the meantime, I am oh, I am I am writing an article about Chinese barbecue <laughs> at the same time that I am researching the difference between Atlantic and Mediterranean tuna at the same time that I'm trying to figure out when I can go to Atlanta to take a cooking class at a Publix. Um <laughs> And, you know, keeping up with all of my procrastinating takes a lot of time. Um, and that, I think, is the other thing about being a food writer is that, you know, you don't sit around, get to like sit around thinking about pancakes and you don't just like go and have a meal and then contemplate it. It's it's the writing, you know, seven stories at a time that is really the challenge of of being a food writer of, a, of any kind of journalist. Um, and, you know, the food is a great perk. I'm not complaining about my job, but it is still work.
2: It is. Well, I'm so excited to read
1: all of those.
2: <laughs> thank you so much for being them. here. Thank you, and you all so thank much. Thank you, everyone. Thanks for coming out.
0: Here's Anna speaking with cook and resident Jen De La Vega.
2: So, I'm here with Jen De La Vega, who is one of Taste's current uh, cooks in residence. But the first time I met her, she was standing behind a giant grill in the backyard of a bar and bedsty. Because, in addition to being a writer and a founding editor of Put an Egg on It, Jen also runs a catering company and does competitive barbecuing. Can I ask you, how does someone living in Brooklyn? get into grilling both competitively and professionally. Like, I don't even have space on my fire escape for a grill. How do you get into that?
3: Well, I was eavesdropping at a bar. That's how it started. (laughs) That's how it all starts. Yeah, I was living in Bed-Stuy, and this bar, Project Parlor, had just opened. And the owner was tending, and I overheard her talking to some regulars, about, I'm thinking of uh, starting a summer barbecue competition, and of, I lit up, <laughs> <laughs> because at the time I was working at a wine bar in Red Hook, I was just getting my feet wet, I was interning at Murray's Cheese, I, I had the the cooking bug, I had just read Kitchen Confidential, I was ready for it, and didn't matter that I didn't have a grill at my home, didn't matter that I didn't know how to light a fire. <laughs> I entered. You learned that all after entering a barbecue competition. I learned it during, yes. (laughs) My roommates and I were lucky enough. We lived maybe four blocks away and there was a a Home Depot. (laughs) And so we would take our granny cart, pick up 40 pounds of charcoal, (laughs) a chimney, um, matches because we always forgot them. And over time, over maybe three years of competing in this same competition, we sort of built our. Catering system that I use now, and it was I drove in headfirst. It was incredible, but very hard.
2: When you enter a barbecue competition, is it like a BYO grill situation? Do you
3: have to show up with the grill? Um, No. (laughs) Luckily, this particular competition already had two sets of grills because the format was head-to-head barbecue teams. Okay. Yeah, and so they they built it into you know, what was going on. And I thankfully didn't have to lug a grill across Brooklyn. Yeah, that adds a whole other (laughs) complication to it. I
2: realized after starting to work with you uh, on your writing for Taste that I actually read about one of the weddings you catered in the New York Times. (laughs) Yes. Um, One of the most talked about weddings of the decade probably took place in the rare books section of the Strand Bookstore. Oh, what was that wedding
3: like? Um, this was for Mitchell and Adam. And the way that I work is we have long conversations about what they hate and what they love. And this was this was a particularly fun wedding because um, they really wanted to feature their heritages in the, the menu and, and all the drinks and stuff. And so to start us off, um, well, Mitchell is Hawaiian Japanese, Adam is Jewish, and so I took them to Hel- uh, Shalom Japan, which is a restaurant that that combines both of those things. So it was a great jumping off point for us, and we, it was really cute. I have a photo of it that we all brought our own little notebooks to take note, you know, take Aww. notes about about what we were talking about, like brunch, and like, oh, this is a great idea. and that's, is it hard to keep everyone in that equation
2: happy? You're thinking about the groom, the other groom, the parents, the, like all
3: of the friends. How do you... Yeah, we, we, we take that into consideration. I believe the food softens the blow on a lot of... Uh, the weddings that I cater are mostly untraditional. Uh, they're either breaking some sort of religious rule or tradition and want to do things their way. And so... We try to make everyone comfortable with the food. So having grandma's pie incorporated into the dessert menu is something that makes people feel included.
2: And Mitchell and Adam's wedding did not have a cake, right?
3: No. They... What did you guys do instead? What was <laughs> the dessert course? They really wanted to feature uh, their favorite donuts from Pies and Thighs, which yes. are very large, by the way. That's good to know. <laughs> I've had to cut. I cut them in half. So there was c- sort of a cake cutting. <laughs> All right. still. Mm-hmm. Um, and we built a tower around a cake stand. And it was a very cool sight. On top of it, we had on skewers um, these really funny just puffball vending machine toys. Like apparently it was something they got from their first date and they kept them.
2: And this was, like, instead of
3: figurines on a wedding cake, yeah, they were so just on so it wasn't holding hands or, you know, bride and groom on top of the donut tower. It was these hilarious little um, puffles with googly eyes. <laughs> wow, I love that. Yeah, and it, it really meant something to them. And they're a couple that kept a lot of their scraps and notes to each other. And so they made a zine and gave it out to people at the end of the wedding. But I also had an extra dessert. Uh, at the end, which was a shave ice bar, wow. because Mitchell's from Hawaii and really misses it, and it's very far away. And I literally bought an ice crusher, like industrial ice crusher, for this wedding.
2: How I have so many questions because this <laughs> sounds like a great party trick. How do you go about buying an ice crusher in New York, and how do you get it into the rare book section of a
3: Manhattan bookstore? <laughs> was risky I knew. yeah it was uh on paper it sounds like a scary situation for the rare book room but uh we had tarps lined down i got the ice crusher online um it was actually quite affordable all right <laughs> and i have it like i have a, a bin now that i keep in my house that is the the shave ice station so it has all the syrups uh speed pours for the tops cups and the cute little gelato spoons such a good surprise to pull out at the end of a party. My Well, it also loops back to the Filipino food that I grew up with. And my mom uh, loves Halo Halo, which is the shaved ice dessert. And she's the kind of person that when we go to restaurants, she'll order that first.
2: Wow. I mean, it's kind of the same idea of like a palate cleanser, right? It kind yeah. of <laughs> refreshes the palate.
3: So I had extra incentive to, to buy and keep this machine.
2: (laughs) So you've written a little bit about, you've written about wedding catering for taste and you've written about Filipino cooking for taste. One of your first pieces for us was about how there are no knives on the Filipino dinner table.
3: Why is that? (laughs) It goes back, this is something that I've been curious about growing up because I, I didn't get to eat at other kids' houses very often. And so going to relatives, aunts and uncles, the place setting always had a fork and a spoon. And then growing up, middle school, I start eating the school lunches and the little plastic, uh, you know, little packet with a napkin fork and a knife, confused the hell out of me. (laughs) You're like, what is this one for? Yeah. And so I started eating at other kids' houses, going to sleepovers, and started noticing that they didn't outright give me a spoon on the place setting. And so it kind of bothered me. I never asked. (laughs) Right. But then I started to watch. uh, Filipinos will use the spoon more as the cutting mechanism and the fork as a shoveling mechanism, so you you scoot food, especially rice. A lot of the meals are rice based, and so you scoot with the fork and shove food in your mouth with the spoon. And it goes back to um, about the 15th century Spain. They colonized the Philippines, and before that, the natives were eating with their hands. This is called Camayan style. Mm-hmm. Use banana leaves. Very economical. <laughs> They're abundant. And um, so through the colonization, Spain brought silverware because they insisted on entertaining, you know, diplomats and and the ruling class and all that. And so with the place setting, it sort of evolved and the spoon took over, really, because in the Philippines, all the food is, is most of the food is soupy.
2: For sure. Yeah. Like, what are some examples of kind of the soupier
3: so adobo, which is uh, chicken, beef, or pork simmered in a vinegar soy sauce gastric with garlic, or there's sinigang, which is tamarind-based. Uh, I, I usually had it with fish, <laughs> but sometimes there is beef or pork. But the reason why there's so much soup is because there's barely any refrigeration. It's a tropical climate, and to get rid of microorganisms we boil and boil the meat and it renders it super soft which is why we didn't really need knives for sure yeah, yeah.
2: and it's also kind of boiling is also a way of using whatever Whatever type of meat you have, right? Or, like, whatever yeah. cut of meat.
3: It's sort of a zero-waste culture because um, things are scarce. They use the whole animal. W- wasting is is something that I, I grew up with. Like, my, my family would always be like, there are starving people in this world. Like, you know, we can't waste the pig's nose. We can't waste the pig's ears or the blood. And so um, it's very fascinating.
2: Yeah. Do you still sort of follow that, like, now as a... In, in your business and in your own cooking? I do.
3: I actually repurpose a lot of uh, vegetable scraps and bones for broth. I make a lot of salts.
2: Oh. Yeah. How? Like, what, what is what's something that you would put in a salt to flavor it?
3: Um, so, most people call... In recipes, most people use the white parts of the leeks and don't... and. Key, you know they toss out the green parts of the leeks, but for me there are several things that I do with them. I either can save them for broth, for broth in the freezer, I can dehydrate them and pulverize them Ooh. and mix it with salt, which is a really fun thing. You get this bright green salt that you can finish things with, beautiful. Or if I run out of room in the freezer and I have quarts and quarts of salt, what I'll do is I'll I'll dry them and use them as smoker starter. Oh, how does that work? How do you do that? Yeah, you just um, you lay out uh, leafy vegetables on a sheet pan. You can leave them outside the sun dry, or um, turn your oven on the lowest setting and wedge a wooden spoon that you don't care about into the door. Okay. <laughs> so you make like your own dehydrator, and uh, they become crispy. And you can just save those outside or or wherever. And whenever I'm starting the grill, um, and want to start smoking something over the coals. I'll uh start the coals and then when they get gray, you put whatever vegetation, aromatics on top. So, uh not only leeks, but I use onion peels and uh thyme stems, like rosemary stems, oh. and yeah.
2: peels you ever?
3: I could, yeah. Yeah. Totally. And then whatever you're smoking kind of has like the flavor of the onion peel or yeah. the leeks. And it's never the same each time, which is so exciting to me.
2: Yeah, that's incredible. <laughs> So, how do if I wanted to learn how to grill today, or today this summer, <laughs> let's say in Brooklyn, what's a good way
3: to get started? Well, <laughs> what is a good way to get started? I honestly walked into the hardware store and asked a lot of questions about. Um, you know, what kind of grill should I have for the space that I have? Because some apartments don't allow gas grills outside. Um, so for me, I, ha- I always had charcoal. And it, it also depends how much space, you know, you have. So if you have a fire escape, it's probably precarious, not a good idea, but... Um, but if you have a backyard, awesome. You can also experiment with uh, burying food, which is something I tried while I was camping.
2: How, would this go over in like, Prospect Park, do you think? No, no,
3: no. <laughs> it has to be your own property. <laughs> What's something that you can bur- bury in the ground to cook? Um, well, <laughs> a whole pig. Yes, a amazing. whole pig, for instance, um, but also beans which is really fun and practical while you're camping. Um, If you have a cast iron pot that you can, um, like a heavy one, you start some coals. Well, you dig a hole. (laughs) You start some coals. How big of a hole? Just Uh, big enough to fit the pot? Yeah, a little bit bigger than the pot. And uh, you can also get some uh, bricks to retain the heat while while it's cooking. So uh, you can lay down some bricks. You put the hot coals over it. You can um putting some more bricks so that your your pot doesn't directly touch the coals, but it could, you know, he could, but um, and then you put the you put the pot down and then you bury it and then leave it for a couple like six hours and you can feel the ground above to check if it's still hot enough. Wow, (laughs) yeah, and then you um, then you unearth it. Uh, I think one of our secrets when we were camping was we put down chains underneath the pig and so if so that we can lift it because it's so oh, much yeah. softer now when <laughs> after it cooks so we, we had it wrapped in I think uh, corn stalks and burlap <laughs> wow I mean this is kind of like nature's slow cooker it right? is yeah like that, that pig I think I don't remember how many pounds it was but it was under there for maybe 12 hours Wow. Yeah. It sounds amazing. Yeah, it Wasn't was it, fun. Was it good? Yeah. Uh, I didn't really plan this, but <laughs> I think I got a cabbage and tortillas. So that pe- we, we tried to do a no utensil meal. And so people grabbed a leaf of cabbage and then just grabbed at the pig and just pulled.
2: <laughs> that makes things easier for yeah. cleanup, right? Yeah. So before you go, I want to
3: ask, you've you've written a cookbook. Can you tell us what your cookbook is? Oh, yes. It's called Showdown Comfort Food Chili and Barbecue, and it's 100 recipes from those competition days. Yeah, so it's Just ev- like a wide range of barbecue. It is everything I've entered. So it's not limited to just that barbecue series. I also participated uh, in the takedowns, which I think is also turned 10 years old this year. Um, It's run by Matt Timms. It's uh, quarterly amateur competitions focused on specific ingredients. So there was a bacon takedown, there was a chili takedown, fondue. Those sort of challenged me to start creating different types of dishes, and those are included there too.
2: Cool. What do you think your next book will be about? Oh, my
3: goodness. So many options. (laughs) Sorry to put you on the spot. So many options. Um, A lot of ideas I have are about groups, uh, communal eating. So roommates are something that I'm very fascinated with. I had a a lot of wonderful roommates and houses. We used to call our apartment Fort (laughs) Kickass. It was named after Archer joke. But um, I lived with two bartenders, and I was the chef. And so the three of us competed together in these competitions. But we also had a lot of really fun home hacks that I thought are worthy of a book.
2: (laughs) That sounds amazing. I can't wait to read it. Thanks for joining us, Jen. Thanks for having me. I like you guys. (laughs) (laughs) The Taste Podcast is hosted by Matt Rodbard and me, Anna Hiesel. It's produced by Gabrielle Lewis. Our theme music is by Steve Raydell. Interviews are recorded live at Books Are Magic in Cobble Hill, Brooklyn. Special thanks to the Books Are Magic family, Emma, Mike, and Michael. Confidence Wine supplied by Smith & Vine. Visit Taste online at tastecooking.com. Thanks for listening.